Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. It's creeping up to holiday time, but much more work to be done before then. Today it's Palestine National Day and I'll be speaking with political activist Amin Abbas about the meaning of the day for Palestinians. Richard Tanter is Senior Research Associate at the Nautilus Institute and Honorary Professor in the School of Political and Social Sciences at the University of Melbourne and he'll be speaking about B-52 bombers and all things nasty. The second last interview for 2022 with Bob Phelps. He's the Executive Director of the Gene Ethics Network. And we conclude with Australia's obligations on torture. It's not something we should be proud of. But let's not forget, Mr Kevin Healy, it's been a week for him. A week, Jan, listener, when the big polluting countries and the big polluters got together with their non-big polluting victims to explain that ongoing big polluting will be the antidote to big polluting, the fossil transition from fossils to fossils, an explanation explaining the name of the talk fest, Cop That. And then they'll argue over the wording of a resolution showing their commitment to a fossil-led recovery, knowing renewables can't be part of the transition because... Well, what happens when the sun don't shine and the wind don't blow? Although a few nuclear power plants mightn't go astray because they don't pollute if we discount the 200,000 or so years to sort out the waste problem. But then, given the parallel fossil-led recovery, that won't matter because the planet will be fried anyway. Oh, and they'll debate how much to provide for the non-polluters to adjust to the threats to which their contribution was stroke is roughly zero, give or take, before they go away and forget all that. And then they'll congratulate each other on achieving so much and say goodbye till next time, next talk fest, by which time many of the annoying non-polluters who keep complaining and upsetting the big polluters won't be around to upset them, having sunk involuntarily into the briny. All this cop that intensity in a luxury resort in that bastion of liberty, freedom and democracy, Egypt. Delegates safely removed from the arrests, imprisonment, torture and summary executions of evil criminals like community, human rights, welfare, trade union, worker and other activists. True Blue Aussie basking in its commitment to cut pollution by 43% by 2030 achieved without cutting pollution hopes to chair one of these talk fests with our Pacific family we suddenly so care about although not enough to prevent us sending massive and increasing levels of coal and gas through their rising seas, their rising waters, to other big polluters making lots and lots and lots of lovely, lovely profits for our big polluters who tell us how much they so desire to reduce their big pollution, only not just yet. And thus, yet another cop will come and go, achieving the lofty ambitions of the great polluters, the rich and powerful, and of the governments whose strings they pull. On these matters, the US of the UN of the US of the world engineer Jeremy Fedvet 
F-E-T-V-E-D-T, real name, is in Trublawasi working on a project funded by the coal industry to reduce the emissions from coal plants, mainly by burying his, their and its heads in the sand, the ostrich solution. And Jeremy assured us, forget zero emissions by 2050, assured us coal will be around for hundreds of years. Just a pity there'll be no life round to enjoy it, other than maybe the odd reptile or some creature evolved to survive on a dead planet. Not even sure Jeremy would go down that well at the cop pollution talk fest. Well, other than with the big polluters who were paying him anyway, spouting their green credentials to enable them to pursue their brown-black intentions. In the Save the Planet Sweet and Sour department, Trubler was, he says it will join a global deforestation ban. That's the sweet bit. But, it says, we will achieve that in huge part by, quote, shifting deforestation away from government-driven regulation to private sector-funded market-driven solutions. Like, that isn't the reason we need a deforestation ban in the first place? Oh, of course, silly me. That's publicly funded market-driven non-solutions. Why would we think that's the sour bit? The Small Business Profits Association finally saw the light after upsetting the other sundry chambers of profits, the good unions, for supporting the evil unions, nation and economy-destroying anti-Trublowazi proposal for multi-employer bargaining, which the sensible, good, caring employer unions know will lead to strike action at the drop of a hard hat, or before you could say Sally McManus, joining all other chambers of profits in calling for the government to make some sensible changes to its caring business class relations bill. Are sensible changes, we ask caring business class spokesperson Innes, will cost the workers. Uh, yes, we will accept this legislation. We will think it has struck the proper balance if they simply eliminate all clauses that benefit workers. This will allow us to continue to make workers' lives so much better. Naturally, the government has taken the caring employer advice, backed up by the independents whose Senate voted relies upon, who know that giving more power to evil unions would lead to a national disaster, and has begun making amendments to appease the sensible suggestions. Ah, we put to caring business class relations minister Tony Bark worse than, uh, it, it seems to be reduced to a strip of paper with lots of holes in it. The, the bill's title, its name, seems to be the, the only thing left. And that's important because the name is what will make workers' lives better and lead to real wage rises. No, I exaggerate, because one section is intact, highlighting the powerful impact the week that was has on true blue politics. After our expose last week of evil union official Josh Cullinan of the Retail and Hospitality Workers Union, an evil union if ever there was one, upsetting great retail and hospitality caring employers by uncovering underpayment, shocking conditions, abuse, exploitation over and above and other sensible work practices. Well, thanks to us, listener, the bits left in the bill not only exclude the evil construction unions from multi-employer bargaining, should this threat survive the cut, but exclude unregistered organisations like Josh Cohenan's evil union or individual workers from the right to suggest some workers could be worse off under the boot, the better off overall test. 
leaving the right to appear before the Fair Work Troubler was he no longer work choices just looks like a commission to registered unions like the good, good, good shopping the workers' association. See association, not an evil union, which since the retail and fast food lot has come along is sounding almost militant, almost as if it cares about workers as much as it cares about their caring employers. With the evil union and its restless workers sidelined, the shopping the workers' association can get back to business as usual, the business of business. And top marks to the socialists and Tony Bark worse than for heeding our warning. Well, they are dedicated listeners who seek our guidance and heeding the advice of the Shopping the Workers Association and caring employers and showing such concern for fast food and retail workers. Let's hope, oh, let's hope, the evil union doesn't find a way to keep making the lives of caring employers and the good, good union so miserable. Speaking of miserable, we can but imagine the tears shed, tears flowing in union offices, particularly the maritime unions, and in goody-goody, long-haired, commie, refugee support groups over the demise of a former week that was favourite, Peter Root the Workers, architect of the aforementioned work choices of sensibly making, devil, making evil unions acting as evil unions a crime. There was that small mistake in telling us evil people seeking refuge had thrown their dear little children overboard. An obvious mistake, because we know Pete and then big supremo little Johnny Howhard would never, never tell a lie. As little Johnny said, he was a great troubler, was he? He really was. He, he was a close friend. He really was which is all that needs to be said about Peter Root, the workers. He had been suffering from Alzheimer's, obviously a very, very late diagnosis of a long-term condition. Which reminds me, the totally non-delusional former US of Big Supremo Donald Trample the Poor declared the defeat of his hand-picked candidates in US of midterm elections a great success, the greatest great success ever although we've got no idea whether he intends to run for Big Supremo again. Well, perhaps the odd subtle hint, as he poured his renowned vitriolic scorn on anyone who opposes him all over the Florida governor, whom he declared desanctimonious, a guy who'd be rivaling Donald on the who's further to the right scale, ideological, if we could call it ideology, ideological buddies, but no... There may be a hint there, and given De Sanctimonious had a huge victory, the vitriol is likely to ramp up, although Donald will assure us that huge victory was nothing compared to his own great result, the greatest great result ever. Then again, Donald did tell us this week he won the last election by a greater margin than in 2016. In the truth department, he should be joining Little Johnny, paying tribute to Peter Root the Workers. Always a tough one, but the Feminist Solidarity of the Week Award to the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, a regular favourite of this award for coverage of a middle-aged ex-footballer who portrays himself as a humorous, hail-fellow, well-met, who has very conservative politics. He contemplated running for the caring business class, Hayseed and Sheepshit Coalition, who has a new relationship with, quote, Brunette Beauty Justine. No, no, that's not earned the award. It's the headline. Billy finds a new filly. Good heavens, is he in a new relationship with a beautiful brunette horse? Then again, what rhymes with Billy and Philly? 
Lord Rupert of Wapping Senior Feminist Solidarity Award of the Week is on its way. And the Understatement of the Week Award to Uluru Dialogue Campaigner and Constitutional Lawyer Professor Megan Davis at the National Press Club. I think having Constable Peter Duffer on board would be a good thing, but I don't think we're there yet. Go on, see understatement. Wonder what she'd really like to say. Although in fairness to Pete, giant minds have a lot to weigh up in deciding whether indigenous people like Megan should be considered real human beings. Finally, 11-11. Poor old Ned Kelly. Such is life, whatever that meant in the circumstances. And as we reported last week, the US of is making Pine Gap an even bigger nuclear target. It's 47 years since the slightest suggested a socialist government may question Pine Gap led to Her Most Gracious Majesty sacking the government with more than a little help from the US of. Encouraging to see, though, the mainstream media reminding us we must not forget. Good afternoon. And Kevin and friends are back on 3CR tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock with City Limits. Join us for the 2022 edition of The Change, Definitions of Freedom. Interactive Theatre, 7 to 9pm on the 16th of December at the Honda Showrooms, Hoddle Street. We're also having an exhibition and preview from 5pm Thursday 24th of November at the store, Abbotsford Convent. Find out more on Facebook at The Change Definitions of Freedom. The Change is presented by United Struggle Project, a 3CR supporter. We're halfway through Pal November, but there is plenty more of events and celebrations happening right up to the end of the month and even in December, and to talk about the importance of November for Palestinians, I spoke with Amin Abbas, Palestinian activist, and we talked about the importance of today, the 15th of November for Palestine, and I asked him when the celebration of the day began, and the history behind November the 15th. The Palestinian Liberation Organization in 1988 had adopted the, um, the, Act of the Independence Act for Palestine, and, and it was on the 15th of November. And so essentially that the governing body at the time was adopting this. Palestinians see this date as a significant day to celebrate Palestine, its culture, tradition, and heritage. And essentially from every year then, uh, Palestinians in Palestine and Palestinian diaspora as well celebrate Palestine. And now we want to bring it to the wider community to, to have them celebrate it with us. And what happened when it was proclaimed? What was the result of Israel? What did they do? I don't think that Israel, uh, it, we, we really recognize or mention Israel in the adoption of this act. So technically all it's doing is that it recognizes Palestine as an independent state uh, as a part of Jerusalem, West Bank and Gaza. So what happened with the UN then? Have they recognized it? Well, the United Nations recognized it as the Palestinian territory, as the Palestinian territories. Uh, there's still the occupied Palestinian territories, which uh, currently some United Nations recognize as Israel, 
and some will, and yeah, some actually claim it's just the old, it's the occupied territories of, of uh, previous Palestinian land. How is it celebrated in Palestine, or how has it been celebrated over the years and up to today? Yeah, Palestine is in Palestine, I'm unsure. I haven't been in Palestine myself. Um, from the footage that I see, Palestinians really celebrate the day uh, with, uh, with excitement and with joy, uh, with lots of food and dance. With uh, Palestine National Day outside of Palestine, uh, we see it being celebrated by Palestinian diaspora, and they see it as a way to firstly just re- recognize uh, Palestinian history and heritage, it's also a great way for the Palestinian diaspora to also uh, really remind themselves of where they came from and really just, you know, embed themselves in that path, in the culture, in the food, in the dance, uh, in poetry, and in singing, uh, with folk music. So it's a great way for Palestinians and non-Palestinians to just, to just have a day where we can celebrate Palestine. Well, today is the 15th of November, and that's Palestine National Day. What's planned, or what's already happened before this time on Tuesday, and what's happening for the rest of the afternoon and evening? Yeah, absolutely. So, for on the 15th of November, on the Sunday evening, we're going to firstly have a band playing uh, at the Feder- at Federation Square. Um, so the band, so before that, I have to say that the event is being held at Federation Square, starts at 6 p.m. and goes on till 8 p.m. We'll be having a band playing folk, passing folk music. We will have uh, poetry being recited by some pretty reputable uh, poets here, here from Australia. We will also have singers, and we will also have passing Dubkid dance crew, Dubkid being the traditional Palestinian dance. Uh, which they will perform on stage and we will also get people, uh, the people, the audience members even engaging in the dance as well. So, uh, we'll all, uh, aside from just the performances, we will also have the stalls where we'll be serving uh, a range of Palestinian food. Uh, you can also get to meet some of the Palestinian organizations that are active in Melbourne and Australia and really get to know more about who, the work they do. And also the fact that you have a space at Federation Square every year now. That is correct, yes. So really we, Federation Square is quite a monumental uh, venue within Melbourne. And so being in Federation Square is, is really the, the perfect venue for it to hold this celebration for us. The reason being is that firstly, we also, the most importantly is we raise the flag in Federation Square and we make Palestine visible to all of Melbourne. And that's a, quite a proud moment for a lot of Palestinians and non-Palestinians when they see those flags raised, and especially when they see the last flag. We have one flag that we, that we raised during the event uh, that everyone can witness. Secondly, the event is quite central in Federation Square, and uh, being such a monumental venue, when you have so many people who probably do not intend on uh, attending the event but happen to be walking by, it really helps with raising awareness of Palestine and the National Day and also the cause. Okay, so plenty of to do tonight. That's right. And many, many thanks to Amin Abbas. Stepped out of his sickbed to talk to us about Palestine National Day, and that, of course, is today.
I hope you can get into Federation Square tonight between 6 and 8pm. And we'll hear more later in the program about Palestine in November with Anglican Bishop George Browning. And to find out more about Palestine in November, please have a look at APAN's webpage, APAN. Kafiyas are Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafiyas and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafiyah to an array of modern designs, all scarves are $35 each. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Where your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafiyas.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. It's difficult to argue against the view that an almost frenzied pace is building in the US for confrontation with China, while at the same time driving a proxy war against Russia in Ukraine. Many commentators are warning about the unfolding madness, breather war with China, not just a war, but the disturbing possibility of America's nuclear war planning. One such commentator is Richard Tanter, who works with the Nautilus Institute and writes on intelligence and strategic questions and is a contributor to Pearls and Irritations on the issue of US and China. Richard, ask you first about the B-52 bombers that they're planning to station at Tyndall Air Base in the Northern Territory. B-52s have been around for decades now, maybe back to the 1950s, I guess if an, a pilot in the night from the 1960s got into a 2020s B-52, all sorts of things would look a bit different, but basically they're the same aircraft. They've just been immensely upgraded and they are very important parts of America's strategic nuclear arsenal and their conventional strike capability over long, over long distances. So that's similar to what it was back in the 60s, and America still uses them for that today. The prospect of them being based in Australia will clearly be of great concern to the countries in the region, but particularly China. I'd imagine that they must be pretty big, because we've got um, Tyndall being upgraded to over a billion dollars. Was that just to facilitate these planes, or is it for more than that? It's for something more than that. That's for the Australian side of it. It would allow us to operate our large tanker aircraft out from there and our long-range early warning AWACS aircraft uh, out there. They're kind of both Boeing Airline-sized aircraft. The B-52s are bigger again. They have enormous weight of fuel for their long range and they're very heavy armaments and they're very, very large aircraft. So the runway has to be widened and it has to be strengthened. Moreover, the Americans have, in the documents that the ABC has discovered, 
recently still further upgraded their requirements for what they want for the permanent deployment of B-52s. And I suspect in future years, the much more modern B-2 uh, aircraft, uh, bomber aircraft. Again, important for both conventional and nuclear bombing. And where have those planes been used in recent years? Been used in combat in Afghanistan and in Iraq, deployed frequently to Guam in the Western Pacific, an American colony in the Western Pacific, and from there they um, have been used for basically nuclear threat purposes aimed at North Korea. And quite remarkably, these huge aircraft will descend from great heights and then come in very low over the Sea of Japan at the bottom of the Korean Peninsula and fly often directly north up the Korean Peninsula over South Korea to the very edge of the demilitarized zone which marks the border with North Korea, veer away very suddenly, you know, making the point to the North Koreans that, well, we're veering away this time, but this is what it would look like if we do it in earnest in time of war. So they can be very used for so-called diplomatic and nuclear signaling, but they've been used to great, well, great effect is the wrong word, but with causing huge amounts of damage in Afghanistan, particularly on attacks on buried targets like caves and the side of mountains and so forth. How far off war with China do you believe the United States is at this time? We have no idea because most of us really are not in a position to know the, the background signaling that's going on. My own feeling is that we are closer than we have been for a very, very long time, and certainly some Chinese sources are indicating that. On the other hand, there is good reason to think that the Chinese would want to avoid war. It's very much in their interest to avoid war. Xi Jinping may want the reunification of China, not just Hong Kong, Macau, but then Taiwan in his lifetime. But whether China is willing to go to war over that issue, we don't know. And particularly a unified China with Taiwan as a wasteland far more battered than, for example, eastern Ukraine at the moment. Uh, remember that Taiwan is an island half the length of Victoria, and it's got a population of 23, 24 million, most of whom live in a narrow strip on the west coast facing China, and any war in that area is going to be catastrophic for the Taiwanese people, and quite probably, uh, given the character of likely American response, with Australia or without Australia, for the people of China, as well as probably for American bases in that region and the peoples living around them. Also, Richard, the, the countries just south of there in Southeast Asia and also our Pacific neighbours, I'm just wondering how they must be feeling at this time. Well, I'm pretty sure that uh, in Indonesia there is serious disquiet about this. There's an Indonesian president Susilo Bambang Yudhoyono, um, about now a decade ago, actually said at the Shangri-La Strategic Conference uh, in Singapore that he said we are in favour of win-win solutions over these issues because we in Southeast Asia know what it's like for our countries to be ripped, um, and Indonesia was no exception to that, uh, but Vietnam and Cambodia obviously much more so. 
I think, though, the problem was the American Defence Secretary of the day, Leon Pestwoods, and said, we're back. And the Americans are indeed back uh, about that. I think in Indonesia and Malaysia and probably even the Philippines, which is much more pro-American, uh, they will be concerned not just about the B-52s, which after all will have to fly through the Indonesian and Philippine archipelagos to reach their Chinese targets, but also the nuclear-powered submarines Australia believes it's going to be able to buy from the Americans or the British will have to pass through the waters of Southeast Asian countries to reach their targets. And Indonesia still maintains, for example, a policy of non-alignment and uh, free and open diplomacy. And so they're going to be very, very concerned about this. Uh, they may not like what the Chinese are doing in the pushing and shoving in the South China Sea, but equally they know more realistically than the Australians what a war is going to mean, and they're not going to be happy about the Australians ignoring their wishes. And the Pacific neighbours? The Pacific countries are perhaps the most solidly anti-nuclear group of any group of states in the world because of not just the experience of World War II in non-nuclear um, terms. So if you look at what happened uh, in the, the Western Pacific in that war, but particularly as a result of um, the exposure of uh, South Pacific Island populations to nuclear testing by the United States, by Britain and by France and the, the um, role of basically the worst. Uh, Fijian troops, for example, involved pretty much as guinea pigs in some of those experiments as our colleague Nick McClellan has documented so well. They have not forgotten those issues and they are deeply suspicious um, of the American and the point is, for example, Guam reminds us that American colonialism is still alive and well uh, in the Pacific, uh, as well as that of France, for example. So I think the Pacific island states, not all of them perhaps, but most of them are going to be very wary about this. Is there a history of Australia actually standing up for itself and saying, I don't agree? I think there's very little chance of that out of the Albanese government, which has indicated pretty clearly that it's going to continue the alliance relationship uh, established under the previous Liberal, Labor, Liberal coalition government. It has said one thing which indicates some willingness to stand up to the United States, and that was the vote of the United Nations to abstain on a vote about the nuclear ban treaty, the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. Previous governments, uh, the Morrison and Turnbull governments, had voted against it. So there is some moderation of policy there. But what we really need is the government to actually support that actively, and there's no sign of that at the moment. So on that's the other thing that we can see. On everything else, the Albanese government is aligning quite precisely and clearly, not just with the American government, but also, for example, with the government of Japan, which is even more hawkish on the issue of Taiwan than the United States in many respects. So this is really quite concerning. What's really important now is that Australian social movements, uh, particularly those supporting peace and environmental justice, start pressuring the Australian uh, government, the Labor government, under Prime Minister Albanese, 
there is a national peace movement, uh, the most important part of which is IPAN, the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network. And they have been campaigning for a long time uh, about the bases, about the alliance. The reality is that Australian governments only change foreign policy when there is very, very substantial mobilisation of popular pressure. The last time it happened was in the early 1980s, uh, in the Hawke government backed down uh, over the American uh, intent to test MX nuclear missiles in our part of the world. And we're going to need something like that level of organisation and mobilisation, which doesn't happen overnight. And it's going to be happy a big change to make that happen. Just looking at the role of the the US in Australia now, apart from the Tyndall base, you've got Northwest Cape, you've got Pine Gap, you've got troops in Darwin. We're really integrated now, aren't we? Embedded, as you say, into US war fighting machine. We're embedded much more than most Australians believe, and I suspect uh, much more than most politicians actually understand. Just taking the example of Northwest Cape in Western Australia, it's on the Exmouth Gulf, and there's a long peninsula that runs from north to south. At the very tip, uh, since the 1960s, there's been a huge communication station initially for communication with American nuclear submarines and now for both American submarines and Australian submarines. That's still there. It's still very important for the Americans. Australia has actually run it for um, the last 20 years or so, but cooperating very closely with the Americans. But more importantly, just to its south, just a few kilometres south, for example, the United States has built two very large facilities which are crucial to America's space warfare capabilities. One is a large antenna, actually recycled and modernised from the old Cape Canaveral missile test range, um, moved from Antigua to Western Australia. It's very potent and uh, designed to use radar to follow low Earth orbit satellites whizzing around the Earth every two hours. Another couple of k's down the road, there is the most modern military telescope in the world, built by the United States and moved almost immediately to um, Western Australia. Uh, and that is deployed to look at telescopes which sit out 36,000 kilometres above the Earth. They're the kind of communication satellites, for example, that we all use and the military relies on. And that telescope is critical for the Americans locating satellites of other countries, working out what they're doing, working out precisely where they're moving to, and, of course, acquiring the data for anti-satellite attacks uh, in time of war. So those kind of changes really tie us into actual American planning for war, embedding, as you said. And the cost to Australia... We have governments saying, no, we can't build new schools, we can't build new hospitals, childcare, aged care workers can't be paid any more money. Is there any estimate of what this embedded with the United States costs the taxpayer of Australia? That's a really good question. One of the things is about is the defence accounts are extremely difficult to understand. I once went through the exercise of working with colleagues, actual proper accountants, 
corporate accountants uh, at a university I was working in asking them, could you explain to me how to understand this? And they took the defence accounts away and came back and said, no, we can't. And we have a strong feeling that they're designed not to be understood by the public. Uh, that's actually not any kind of joke. Um, we don't have a full accounting of these things. We know that the operations in Afghanistan over 20 years, in their last few years, were costing more than a billion dollars a year. We know that the cost of the submarines that the Turnbull government ordered from France and the Morrison government cancelled rose from initial estimates of $25 billion to $45 billion when they signed the agreement uh, with France. And at the time that Morrison cancelled them, the government admitted that the estimated cost had risen to $90 billion. These are huge amounts of money that we are outlaying there. It's most unlikely that whatever we do with the British or the Americans uh, will be much less than $100 billion and could well be much more. Uh, these are enormous projects, extremely hard to control, even with the best will in the world. And I guess one of the important things that we should be looking for what we should be asking the Albanese government to do is full and transparent accounting of the costs of our engagement with the United States in this new version of what in the 1950s and the 1960s was called forward defence. Because as you said earlier, none of this has much to do with the defence of Australia. Well, it all sounds counterintuitive to me when you think of how much we rely on China for trade and China's only got to say, well, you keep up your support and your war practices with the United States and you can kiss all that trade at goodbye. Well, there probably are some limits on that in the sense that China has some other sources of, for example, iron ore, but um, one of the biggest in Brazil was severely interrupted by the collapse of an important dam there and that mining. So... They have some limitations on options. On the other hand, the Chinese have a pretty clear policy already of diversifying sources of critical supplies. And I guess you could say that Australia has been fairly foolish in many respects in its enthusiasm for exports to China in terms of Australian vulnerability to exactly that kind of cut-off that you're talking about. And the Chinese have already indicated that here what really amount to a kind of flick uh, rather than a full-scale punch back at us um, over our very foolish, extraordinary enthusiasm for being a front-runner on uh, an inquiry into the Chinese sources of uh, the COVID SARS-19 epidemic, quote-unquote, and our willingness to uh, be an echo chamber for the Americans. The Chinese have not really applied the screws that they could, as you imply. And I think it's always sensible for a country like Australia to um, have a more diversified um, export regime. But successive governments uh, have not thought this through. I think we're in potentially very serious trouble there, although possibly not catastrophic trouble on that front. You don't think that the Labor government is willing to listen to reason? Well, I think there are very impressive people in, in some people in the Labor government, in the ministries, and I'm sure they have some uh, good advisers. But 
in the defence area, there's very little that gives you any sense that there's an, an, an independent process of assessment in the bureaucracy, in the military, of whether or not this extraordinary dependence on and alignment with the United States, which is backed up by essentially technological hardwiring, whether that uh, allows us to make our own decisions properly and independently of the United States. I see no real sign that there's any improvement on what the Liberal government was doing there and possibly actually something's actually getting worse. It's time for people power. It certainly is, and uh, I think people sometimes underestimate the importance of mass mobilisation uh, in Australia in terms of its effect uh, on governments. And certainly I was closely involved, as you were, I think, in parts of that in the 1980s, which is now a very long time ago. But when I talked to former Latvian Labor ministers who were in Cabinet at that time, say around the time of the Nuclear Disarmament Party, in the 1984 elections, we definitely had much more of an effect on them than we believed at the time. So I think it's a standard tactic of governments to say, well, march up and down all you like, it's not going to change our policy. I think we know that if we get big enough and if we are focused and persistent enough, then I think we can have an effect and we very much need that now in Australia. Thanks very much, Richard. Good to be with you. And I've been speaking with Richard Tanzer, who works for the Nautilus Institute and writes on intelligence and strategic questions. Richard is a former president of the Australian Board of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons and was a professor of international relations at Kyoto Sika University from 1989 to 2004. have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home we'll drop them in at 3CR and put them in the Books and Boots bin Books and Boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional First Nations communities and children across the country contact us at Books and Boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au we love a good book Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. Next, my penultimate interview for 2022 with Bob Phelps. Bob was the founder and executive director of Gene Ethics Network. First issue, Bob, is Gain of Function Research. Fill us in with that one. Yes, well, this is particularly research with uh, viruses and bacteria in laboratories. And 
what the research does is to, particularly with pathogenic virus and bacteria like the SARS, which we've recently uh, seen out in the community, this kind of research can make them deadlier and more transmissible, both from animals to humans and between humans. This is where we start to become concerned about the destruction of environments and the exposure of humans to uh, some of these microorganisms that exist in nature, in animals, and are now crossing over to human beings. We very likely saw it with HIV, for instance. Um, the virus there appears to have come from monkeys in Africa. You know, throughout history, we've seen that viruses and bacteria are very mobile in the environment, and uh, when they get into the human population, they can cause pandemics. The research on these things, uh, called gain of function, is where you actually take one of these pathogens and make them more transmissible and more deadly in order to investigate how they actually operate and to try to find vaccines or some other treatments for them to slow down their progress in Africa recently. And uh, COVID, some people have suggested that it might conceivably have come out of a laboratory as well as the uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Still, there's a debate about whether or not it uh, came from a lab in Wuhan in China or out of a, um, a mine where people were investigating bat viruses or indeed from the local food market. These debates are open. To look pretty carefully at uh, the gain-of-function research as a potential source of these uh, diseases. Um, if we're deliberately making them more virulent and more transmissible, then uh, we certainly don't want them escaping. And some of this research has been done in Australia as well as in high-security laboratories around the world. COVID pandemic began quick to call for a, an examination of the security at the Wuhan laboratory. But our view was that, in fact, uh, he should have been pushing for a review of all such high-security laboratories around the world. And now the National Health and Medical Research Council has that, that research in Australia and come up with a, um, a document for discussion about um, what that organisation itself has funded, which CSIRO has conducted in our high-security laboratories, particularly down the one down at Geelong, which is a level four facility, fine, but when you uh, make it more dangerous than it need necessarily be, then some people, like um, a recent editorial in the New York Times, starts to seriously question whether the benefits of such research are actually going to outweigh the potential risks if something escapes. Some people could say, well, they're, they're playing with God, aren't they, doing all these researches? I'm sure some of them don't know what's going to be the result when they're finished. Well, those who believe in God, I suppose, might say that, but uh, I think there are some pretty common sense and mundane issues here. Uh, we know that the uh, high-security lab in Australia uh, has had the occasional problem. Uh, there was a, a release of Newcastle disease, a chicken disease, where a worker was um, contaminated and was sent home. A worker there uh, was suffocated to death in an airlock fatality some years ago, Things can and do go wrong, and the laboratories around the world are more or less secure. Many of them had fallen into disrepair, and particularly in the USA, 
there was a survey done several years ago in which um, a number of them were found to be uh, quite unsatisfactory from a biocontainment point of view. That's a big question. The other thing is that these laboratories and the research that's done in them has dual uses. So there there are the experiments, the gain-of-function experiments that we've described, which are dealing with uh, viruses and bacteria to try to discover cures. But despite the fact that there is a biological warfare convention, this kind of research is uh, still not properly prohibited. And many laboratories around the world are looking at organisms which have the potential to be used in uh, warfare, biological warfare specifically, That's something that needs to be tightened up globally as well. It should be part of this current debate, I think, whether or not we should be uh, allowing these supposedly high-security facilities to be set up in many, many places around the world. For instance, we know that the uh, last smallpox cases uh, came from a laboratory in 1978. A British medical photographer was accidentally infected at the University of Birmingham Medical School, and while she transmitted the virus to her mother and did die, it luckily didn't spread further. It's thought by some experts that the 1977 global influenza pandemic, which was um, a very old and extinct strain of influenza, could conceivably have been triggered by a lab laboratory accident as well. It needs to be aware of the risks that uh, scientists are taking on our behalf, have some say about whether or not that we want this kind of experimentation to be done. When you talk about bans on these research facilities, do you take into account the test animals that they use, not only the cruelty, which I see it as cruelty of infecting and whatever they do for these animals in these laboratories, but also that how they expect that the results are going to be the same for human beings? Governments, uh, particularly the Victorian government, I know, has uh, put in place requirements. There are committees which are supposed to oversee animal experimentation, so-called anti-vivisection. Vivisection in, um, ha- has been an issue for a long time where people have opposed the use of animals, uh, including primates, cats and dogs, rabbits, and then the rodents, uh, rats and mice, which are the most commonly used. You're right, extrapolating the results of such research to the human population often raises some issues. The fate of those animals, of course, is ultimately their death. So there are issues and there are committees that look at it, animal ethics committees, but some people have suggested that there may be other ways to do some of that research. Um, the AIMS test was the touted as a potential alternative which didn't involve animal experimentation. That's another discussion that we should have, uh, whether or not we should be exploiting animals in that way and uh, whether the benefits of such research actually weigh, outweigh the, the suffering of, of a lot of animals, literally tens of thousands of animals each year uh, around the world and uh, particularly, of course, of our close, uh, the primates. Well, you're asking for a ban on gain-of-function research, but you want a moratorium on global gene drive. Well, gene drives are a new uh, genetic construct as well, which is a way of driving a genetic trait through a whole population of a species. And it's been proposed particularly 
for driving deleterious genes through things like mosquitoes and, again, rodents, uh, particularly rodents on remote islands where they can damage the native population. This kind of work has been going on now for probably a decade, uh, particularly since genome editing was invented in 2012. There isn't a great deal yet to show for this line of research where a whole population can either collapse or be made extinct. And the dangers there, of course, are that you might do something locally, but if the gene drive gets into the whole population of organisms, then, of course, it could spread much more widely, either nationally, regionally, or even globally. Just taking the mosquitoes as an example, gene drives have been used to sterilize mosquitoes, the ones that transmit the microorganisms that create malaria and dengue and a number of other uh, human diseases. So the mosquito itself is just the carrier of the disease into the human population. And it was thought that uh, by using gene drives, the population of the mosquitoes not exposing or exposing less people to things like malaria, dengue fever, and a lot of the fevers that uh, we have in Australia as well. The thing is that uh, even mosquitoes have a place in the ecology. A lot of other organisms depend on the fact that uh, something like a mosquito is in the environment. Take another example, the, the rodents, which it's proposed to, to eliminate on remote islands. If that gene drive were to get onto the mainland, uh, say on the continent of Australia, with big implications for eagles and other raptors, the supply of those small rodents as a very key part of their food supply. So we need to think much more widely about the ecological impacts of destroying or making extinct particular species. For our reasons, you know, human beings are troubled by certain things, but it may be that they're a key part of the ecology. All species rely on genetic diversity, biological diversity out in the natural environments. And we need to think, therefore, very, very carefully about what we're going to do if we use uh, biocontrol agents like gene drives. And, and this is a very live discussion at the moment in Australia because um, the Centre for Invasive Species Solutions is currently discussing a, a draft 20-year plan for weed biocontrol in Australia. We've got many, many weeds here. They cost Australian farmers about $5 billion a year. And uh, the proposal now is that gene drives be used to uh, uh, kill weeds as, as well as uh, rodents and mosquitoes. So it's a new line of research. We need to have a public discussion. Well, what are we likely to see in the near future? Regarding gene drives. Well, that's hard to say. There are a lot of people breaking in there, but uh, uh, there is also a movement globally at the uh, Convention on Biological Diversity uh, discussions in December. There will be a move of civil society groups and some governments to get a ban on gene drives globally because they do pose the sorts of environmental hazards and risks that I've just talked about. And this hasn't been sorted out. Private industry has uh, gone ahead, released um, gene-drive mosquitoes and uh, 
The fact that the US military is very centrally involved in funding this has been an issue as well. So some of the research on rodents and gene drives in the high security facilities in Australia are actually funded by the US military. And really that raises some red flags as well about what their legitimate interests might be. We need to have a debate about gene drives, but it will come up for discussion in the Global Biodiversity Forum because it, the new techniques and technologies do pose uh, these really quite fundamental capacities to disrupt uh, global ecosystems on which life on Earth depends. We need to have the discussion before we allow corporations and researchers to go ahead and start releasing things which could have some very dire environmental consequences. But when you dig into that, for instance, you find that at the moment uh, Australia has about 2,700 different weed species that are invasive that have been either introduced into Australia or taken out of their local context and grown somewhere else on the continent and are creating environmental problems as well. And adding to that, there are about 20 other uh, invasive uh, plant species that are entering the Australian environment each year. And yet the gene drive proposals that the Centre for Invasive Species Solutions is proposing uh, would control only about three of the current crop of problem weeds, annual ryegrass, the common wild oat and cockspur. You know, three out of nearly 3,000 is really not going to be a very good performance. And if they're really serious about controlling weeds, and we do want to get off the chemical treadmill, which is costing farmers, then I think they need to come up with something a little bit brighter than, uh, than gene drives in plants because we don't know their consequences and the potential benefits are minimal uh, on the face of it. Who will be representing Australia at this convention? Well, mostly governments. I mean, we've put our name to the uh, call for uh, a moratorium on gene drives globally and around 300 other civil society groups globally have done so as well. But it'll mostly be... Um, the group Save Our Seeds, um, etc. group from Canada and others lobby at the international level that will be at that meeting and certainly be advocating very strongly on our behalf for the gene drive moratorium that we're all asking for. I should say too that some governments are sympathetic to this view, although it doesn't include Australia. Australia's been a real slacker when it comes to uh, biosafety internationally. We've got some of the biggest grain and produce traders in the world, Australia, the USA, Canada and Argentina, for instance, that are not parties to the International Biosafety Protocol that was negotiated 20 years ago and has 170 other countries as its members. And so one of the things we've been advocating to government for a long, long time and getting no response is the uh, Cartagena Protocol, which is the protocol on biosafety to try to ensure that the international movement of genetically manipulated organisms is done safely during the transport, handling and use. And so those rules are in place, agreed to, as I said, by some 170 countries. And it's about time Australia got on board and did some of the heavy lifting on that as well. You know, we, we claim to have some of the best regulations 
and precautionary approaches in the world, and yet we can't even do something basic like uh, joining the biosafety protocol, and that really is pretty sad. And in these international meetings, you very often find that Australia is among the leaders of people trying to say, yeah, we've got to go ahead with things like gene drives and uh, gain of function. Our government really is just a little bit too gung-ho. On the other side, it's saying, you know, trade could be affected. Well, trade isn't the number one issue as far as we're concerned. We need to protect the global environment. We need to make sure that uh, our life support systems do survive. You know, trade is important, but it shouldn't trump something like biosafety when it comes to deciding uh, should we put the rules in place that will uh, make genetic manipulation and genome editing that much safer internationally. You are listening to Tuesday Home Time on 3CR and I'm speaking with Bob Phelps who's the Executive Director of the Gene Ethics Network. Can we talk now, Bob, about the IVF industry and it's a huge industry here in Australia. Is it so in other countries or are we sort of up near the top? Oh, we're certainly in the vanguard, but we're by no means the biggest. I mean, uh, IVF is now producing a large part of the human population, and, of course, it has become a huge and secret business. In fact, there was a very good um, SBS TV documentary, which people would be advised to have a look at if they can go on SBS and have a look at their um, follow-up, called Inconceivable, The Secret Business of Breeding Humans. And the uh, main person in the story was Sarah Dingle, who was a journalist herself, who found out at the age of 27 she was donor-conceived and then sought to find her biological father and found that her own records were redacted. The information which would have led her back to him had been taken out of the record. And in the course of her investigative research, she found that, in fact, In Australia, there are something like 100,000 people in the same position over the last three or four decades that IVF has become a a multi-billion dollar industry globally. The uh, record keeping and the destruction of of information about donors in particular uh, was just ubiquitous. Certainly, the rules have changed a bit, and now mostly donor-conceived children can find out who their biological parent is uh, when they are 18, but uh, it wasn't always so, and uh, some doctors even used their own sperm to impregnate their patients, and that was sort of one of the darker chapters in the whole sorry business. From a social point of view, what we're now confronted with is many tens of thousands of people out in the community who don't know who their siblings are, their half-siblings who may have the same father. In some cases, They may have literally hundreds of half-siblings out there. And what the TV documentary makes clear is that people can be attracted to each other. In Sarah's case, she had made a friend who, when they finally went to the trouble of uh, going through uh, uh, the tracing things on on the web uh, in which you can find out who you're related to, they uh, found that they were half-sisters. And there is thought to be some genetic attraction between people who are genetically related. So the problem of half-siblings now inadvertently uh, having sex with each other or marrying is 
a real issue to so many people out there. And it's an unresolved problem that uh, I think a rather unscrupulous IVF industry uh, hasn't really addressed. Something like 1 in 20 births in Australia is now um, donor-conceived. We need some really seriously stricter laws about how this business is going to be conducted. And there's another international summit coming up in London next year? Yes, well, this is the third international summit on human genome editing. Since 2012, the capacity to edit the genome of any living organism, whether it's a human being, animal, plant or microorganism, has existed, and many, many uh, new techniques are emerging. There have been now uh, two summits and the third, as you said, coming up, and pressure is building at those meetings for human germline genome editing to be allowed. That's to say the editing of the human genome so that the changes will be passed on to future generations. It's been generally agreed that uh, up until now that research trying to find out how to provide therapy for particular diseases in individuals which are not passed on to future generations is allowable. But the germline genome editing, which would affect children, grandchildren and all future generations is now very topical because at the second international summit in Hong Kong in 2018, a Chinese researcher announced there that he had actually created genetic twins and that they were genome edited to say that they would pass on their new HIV-resistant trait to their children, grandchildren and future generations. This uh, threshold had been informally prohibited among the scientific community until then. But, of course, that particular researcher had many, many collaborators around the world, including many people in the USA, who are now breaking their necks to give it a go as well and see what they can do in the way of really amending the human gene pool in pretty fundamental ways. We need a very thoroughgoing public debate now about whether it's appropriate that based on our values and our priorities as a society that we should start amending the human gene pool for future generations, essentially making decisions for them about what they are going to be like. And there are many pressures on this as biotechnology converges with things like artificial intelligence. There's now a discussion about the augmentation of uh, human beings, uh, particularly for going on the battlefield and having more acute senses and being more athletic. This is a debate that's been going on for since the 19th century when the eugenics movement became big time until in a number of countries through Europe, North America, many women were sterilized and it was thought that the human population could and should be improved. And it was only, of course, when the Nazis implemented their policies before and during the Second World War that the whole concept of eugenics kind of went underground and became unpopular. But it's still there. People still think about the perfectibility of human beings, trying to make the human population better. But you've got to realise that uh, we bring our values to it and that tinkering with the gene pool, the human gene pool, is a huge ethical and social issue that hasn't been properly discussed and that we should be saying to uh, those who are breaking their necks to do this, uh, hang on a minute, 
uh, we need to have a, a thorough discussion about this beforehand. What we see is that instead we've got academics, industry and the science community now trying to massage public opinion with things like so-called citizens' juries where they get a group of people together, they give them information about human genetic engineering and then they say, is this a good idea, is this acceptable, should we be allowed to go on with this research, could we use it clinically to change human beings? The thing that's pretty evident, not unbiased, not serving the interests of those who want to go ahead, because it is. A citizen's jury, for instance, was held uh, on human genome editing in June of last year in Canberra. While the participants did say at the conclusion, yes, maybe we could have research in this area, they were certainly opposed to the clinical use in the IVF industry of these techniques but they also said that they felt that they hadn't been fully informed by the experts who had been brought in to inform them. And I think that's the key message, is that we need to have a, an unbiased debate about this. From IVF to food, and let's talk about food standards first, and the body that's responsible for food standards. You've given them an, an F. That's not good. <laughs> no. Yeah, that's Food Standards Australia New Zealand. Of course, um, they collaborate with our state and federal governments and also the New Zealand government to set the standards, but they really are the engine of deciding what is going to be allowed into our food supply and what isn't. And I think we can pretty much say in response to their stakeholder satisfaction survey which is currently open until November the 21st. And I'd encourage everybody who can to go to the Stakeholder Satisfaction Survey and have your say about what you think of our food standards, where um, things are not adequately labelled. Food standards pretty much approves all applications that are made to it, where it decides in advance that, yes, things are going to be allowed to be approved, even prior to any public input to the process. So we see a whole raft of new processing aids and additives produced using uh, genetic manipulation techniques coming into the food supply, for instance, uh, unlabeled, really substandard information available about synthetic chemical residues from agricultural chemicals, uh, insecticides and herbicides in the Australian and New Zealand food supplies as well really for SANS glosses over what should be a very robust public debate. When they're challenged, they come back with weak responses to the very legitimate uh, concerns that are raised with them. We saw, for instance, last summer, when everybody was uh, pretty much on summer holidays, that they agreed wheat variety being grown in Brazil being accepted into the Australian and New Zealand food supplies. And the interesting thing in that particular case was uh, three major flour milling and baking companies in Australia and New Zealand made, I thought, very detailed and thoughtful objections to this uh, new genetically manipulated product coming into the Australian food supply. Really, their objections were dismissed in a very troubling way, given the flick without really engaging with those companies engaging with the community about do we really need or want a new variety of wheat 
which has been genetically manipulated to make it more drought resistant, but also to resist being sprayed with herbicides more often and at higher doses coming into the Australian food supply. And that discussion really hasn't taken place. Yes, the product would need to be labelled. Yes, those companies have said that even if you bring it in here, we won't use it. I think there are still big question marks over its safety. It's not being grown in Australia yet, but sometime soon it's uh, speculated that there will be an application to grow those uh, GM wheat varieties in Australia as well. So we're monitoring that. We'll also be working with the companies to uh, just see what happens. Everything is not going very happily in Brazil. It turns out that those particular varieties of GM wheat are um, not as robust as was first thought, that they produce less than the conventional varieties. But uh, we don't want it just brought willy-nilly into Australia uh, like the hundreds of tonnes of uh, genetically manipulated wheat and soybean which come in every year for animal feed and come in under the radar. The products of those animals fed on those genetically manipulated products are not labelled or notified to the public in any any way either. We have these several intrusions of uh, GM into our food supply. We are trying to keep the debate and information flowing. Uh, but for SANS, it does everything it can to shut down any proper discussion uh, about these rather important matters. Purple tomatoes, genetically modified. I've seen plenty of purple tomatoes in Australia that aren't genetically modified. Why do we need them? Well, of course, all sorts of claims are being made about them having antioxidants and having other health-giving aspects. So... Industry and science are always looking for new products to sell, for new seed to patent so that they can charge higher and more consistent fees on the seed. It can prohibit farmers from saving seed for planting next year. This is why one of the uh, more subtle reasons that genetic manipulation of our food supply is done is that it enables monopoly ownership. Seen purple tomatoes now the genetically manipulated varieties, which are supposed to be bigger and better, being developed. Lots of claims are being made for them. But it's interesting that uh, some of the animal research has shown that, in fact, any benefits are unlikely to flow on to the human population. So here we would have a purple tomato. The seed would cost more. It would probably have to be labelled. It would have to be segregated from other tomatoes. Where are the benefits to the community? minimal or none at all, just to benefit some part of the food industry, maybe the farmers that grow it. Really, these are the sorts of issues and questions that we continue to raise about why do we need a genetically manipulated food supply. The food supply is already pretty good as it is, and we've got organic and biodynamic production systems which keep synthetic chemicals out of our food supply. Maybe that's good enough without genetic manipulation. We've got new fish species genetically manipulated, which have been accepted in Japan and are being grown out there and exported to who knows where. Fake food should be on our radar as a public issue. Yeah, the food supply, for all the tinkering, really what we were already doing was pretty darn good, and uh, perhaps we should just stick to it. 
improve our production systems so that we can regenerate the environment, we can have organic and biodynamic products. Yes, they cost more, but that reflects the true cost of production. It costs a lot more to produce in terms of environmental impacts, impacts on the public health, etc., than the actual price that you pay in the supermarket. The prices are driven down by the supermarket monopolies uh, so that farmers are being squeezed all the time, uh, even to the point where they can't meet their costs of production. And we need a thoroughgoing review of the fact that uh, probably one and a half million Australians are not able to put a meal on their dinner tables, uh, including a lot of children. So the current setup, the current industrialised food system is not serving the needs of the Australian public. And it's about time we got on with uh, ensuring that the right to food, everyone's right to food, regardless of their uh, station in society or their income, is satisfied. We've made commitments globally through UN conventions and so on that there is a right to food and it's about time Australia got on, tightened up the regulation of new foods coming into the food supply and made sure that the food supply that's available is not disrupted by things like the COVID, that everybody can be fed well and there is enough food for everybody. Already it's just not distributed very well. Food Bank and Second Bite are really good services trying to cover the, uh, patch up the, uh, the problems, but we need some fundamental reviews about food in Australia uh, before much longer to make sure that everybody's rights are observed and fulfilled. And the final interview for 2022 with Bob Phelps will be on December the 13th. Wildlife Victoria is a non-profit emergency response service committed to assisting wildlife in need across Victoria. Our trained and dedicated volunteers rescue and rehabilitate sick, injured and orphaned animals so they can be released back to their native habitat. If you see wildlife that may need our help, please contact us on 8400 7300. To donate or register to become a volunteer, hop onto our website at wildlifevictoria.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Australia's most iconic bike riding holiday, the Great Vic Bike Ride, is on from Saturday 26th of November to Sunday 4th of December. This rolling bike festival will have you pedalling along the beautiful Great Ocean Road, through the Otways and Golden Plains. Tickets include all meals, a camping spot, luggage transfers, daily entertainment and more. Sign up at www.greatvic.com.au Use promo code 3CR to get 10% off. Great Vic Bike Ride, a 3CR supporter. Today, a focus on torture and Australia's obligations under the UN. They are contained under the UN Subcommittee on Prevention of Torture, SPT, under the Optional Protocol to the Convention Against Torture and Other Cruel or Degrading Treatment or Punishment, OPCAT. And we've recently heard about SPT, the UN Subcommittee on the Prevention of Torture, 
due to their representative's decision to take what has been called the drastic step of suspending its visit to Australia, saying the country was in clear breach of its obligations. I spoke with Vinoy Campmark and asked him first why they came. Well, the, it all starts with the the ratification in 2017, you know, of OPCATS, you know, the uh, optional protocol, um, which is in addition to the Convention Against Torture. OPCAT was ratified by the Australian government in 2017, which gives the subcommittee that polices it, as it were, um, oversight and overview of compliance and advisory, importantly, the advisory mechanism um, over detention facilities. So any facilities that deal with deprivation of liberty. So the idea is that these subcommittee members come, they are entitled to visit any part, any facility unannounced. And that's a very important part that raised controversy here. And the reason for this was that as part of the mechanism, Australia promised that by January this year, so 2022, they would have brought in measures to comply with OPCAT, and this they have not done. So the authorities, be it at the Commonwealth level, state territories, have struggled and been sluggish in putting forth reforms and legislation, these so-called preventive mechanisms. They just have not done so by the date. So they wanted to, the subcommittee wanted to come in and investigate that state of affairs. Why did they put these conditions on Australia in the first place? Well, all signatories... Um, when they do sign up and then ratify the convention, are uh, obligated to have what are called these national preventive mechanisms where they have oversight bodies um, that examine the state of the facilities to make sure that there is no risk of torture happening and to make sure that there is no risk of ill treatment. So, And that's the reason why this is done. So all signatories are subject to the same uh, regulations, but Australia now joins a rather select band of countries that has seen a suspension of the visit by the SPT, by the subcommittee monitoring OPCAT. So Australia joins countries such as uh, Azerbaijan, uh, Ukraine and Rwanda in terms of either suspension or termination of the visit by these uh, subcommittee members. Well, can we look at why it was suspended? What did Australia do or didn't do? Well, a lot of it goes down to or has come down to two states, uh, the uh, conduct primarily from New South Wales. It's worth noting that in his October 17th uh, welcome address, welcome statement to the UN subcommittee, Mark Dreyfus, uh, the Attorney General, thanked all the governments there in terms of the territory, states and so on, but New South Wales did not feature. So that's immediately raised eyebrows as to what would happen there. And as it transpired in New South Wales, the Corrective Services Minister, Jeff Lewis, made it very clear that the uh, Corrective Services had turned back uh, committee members from investigating three sites, you know, including Queanbeyan Jailhouse, saying that they had not gone through the paperwork and had not actually given due notice about turning up. And as we know, the whole point of the monitoring mechanism here is you turn up unannounced. So New South Wales was prominent in that, preventing the uh, investigators or the subcommittee panel from turning up and investigating what was going on. And Queensland also joined in by not permitting access 
to inpatient units, uh, individuals uh, who are, for legal reasons, you know, facing medication or being held, uh, waiting charges and so on. So in that particular case there, Queensland also made it difficult. So the result of that is that the SPT decided to suspend their visits because they could not perform their job, and that's the official reason there. But these three governments must have known what was going to happen if they didn't comply? It's quite interesting. I, you would think so, but uh, the statements that come from the New South Wales government, from the Parate government you know, certainly, do not seem to indicate an understanding in the statements made by this maybe out of pure ignorance as well. I wouldn't put it past them. Uh, the statement from uh, the Corrective Services Minister, Lewis, uh, to an estimates committee suggested, well, first and foremost, that notice had to be given, which is simply not the case. You know, and also, he seemed to misunderstand the nature about what OPCAT is. OPCAT is you know, the point about these UN, this UN committee in particular is to give confidential advice on how these detention facilities should be operated so that if there are issues of a risk to anyone detained, deprived of liberty, that can be rectified. It is not meant to be a, a shaming game, as, as sometimes confused with other conventions. So he didn't seem to understand that. But then he also raised the point, and this is perhaps the central point that almost all the governments have agreed upon, is that they've struggled with the funding issue about OPCAT. There's disagreement with the Commonwealth ever since it was ratified in 2017 about funding the mechanism itself. So, you know, New South Wales has been very vocal about this. Victoria has been vocal about this too and said that, uh, and as has WA, Western Australia, because they've said that uh, the Commonwealth is simply not putting the bill where it should. So there is a disagreement yet again with this issue of how Commonwealth funding is distributed. Well, can you talk, Benoit, about the states where the members did get to, or talk about Western Australia, Northern Territory, Tasmania, what did they find while they were there? Well, this is a very interesting question because we're not necessarily privy to that, you know, and that's one of the issues that some have said it's an issue, but that's the way the panel uh, works. When she has been asked about this, uh, the, the panel, the chief of the panel um, member, actually, uh, the chief panel member has actually mentioned that because the findings and the evidence, they don't tend to disclose these things. What will happen is we will see what findings were at a future date, hopefully, when they actually draw these up in, in a summary and so on. But for the moment, we do know, for example, that uh, Don Dale was visited in the Northern Territory. We do know that there were some facilities you know, across the board that were visited. But, uh, yeah, um, the primary ones, they're leaving Queensland from the Health Department and the New South Wales from the Corrections Department. They were the ones who were the, the real stonewallers here. What about detention centres for either what they term illegal immigrants or refugees? Now, this is a very interesting point in the whole episode, if you like, is that these have not featured. What, what is quite peculiar, is, and, and I think it was a very peculiar thing in 2017 behind the ratification process too, is that the... Uh, the then Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, and Attorney General George Brandis expressed their horror uh, at the youth uh, detention centre, um, of course, in Northern Territory, uh, Dale and so forth, as being one of the primary impetuses behind the government. Ratification. 
Nowhere is there any mention about Australia's complicity and involvement, of course, in offshore processing, and there is no mention about instances where uh, refugees themselves have been detained, be it in hotel accommodation on shore, or be it in Manus and uh, be it in Manus and Nauru. So that's been an incredible omission in the context of OBCAT and Australia's compliance with it. So even though Australia already has problems with compliance at each level of government with its facilities in terms of dealing with uh, just detention, deprivation of liberty in general, but there is this huge aspect of it that's been neglected, which is, of course, the, the appalling treatment of refugees so that this uh, country's officials tolerate. Well, why then is Australia getting away with it? Well, what is interesting is that, and again, um, it's, it, it's a curious aspect about the inquiry that it did not seem, or the investigative, what would have been a obligation, did not involve looking at those things. But I think one of the reasons is that uh, they, may, they remain very secretive. Uh, in Australia's offshore program remains of military grade, even under the Albanese government. The paperwork of securing access to it is, is a nightmare. So I'm, uh, what is interesting is that, uh, yes, I, ca I can't tell you off <laughs> why, why the SPT did not bother to actually do that. But um, in, it's interesting that in all the discussions that had there, that remains one of the great omissions in the whole program. Is this the first inspection by the team of Australia? Yes, uh, it is, because the, um, after ratification took place in 2017, uh, the um, undertakings were then made by the Commonwealth, um, and of course in line with that, a, a supposedly a coordinated effort with the state and territory governments to bring in compliance measures that would have or should have been um, implemented by January this year. And this did not take place. The expiry, the, the date duly expired. And, and so uh, ahead of time, as it were, they just didn't manage to do what they should have in terms of these uh, so-called preventive mechanisms and uh, you know, so-called terms of compliance. So um, it's the first visit, and it, it has not gone down too well, uh, although it, the SPT has said that uh, if um, you know, they're optimistic that the visit may be resumed later and not terminated. But we'll have to see what happens there. How long has this organisation or the, the inspections been in practice? That what, I mean, what I'm saying is why is Australia only joining in in 2017? Well, uh, well exactly. This, this is the thing that was interesting about why it happened in the first place. The impetus for it was uh, apparently because the Attorney General then, uh, George Bandis, uh, had some kind of attack of conscience uh, that, you know, youth, uh, you know, detained youth uh, in, you know, the Northern Territory are being treated horrifically. Uh, these extraordinarily atavistic practices uh, that have no sense of uh, humanity and those being deprived of liberty. Um, and he made it very clear that that was the primary issue, and he was uh, lauded for that. But what was interesting is that human rights organizations you know, at the time we're thinking, well, this is a chance now to also bring the spotlight onto other detainees, including refugees, asylum seekers, and so on, but that wasn't to be the case. So Australia, I think for very obvious reasons, and when I say obvious reasons, primarily because of the concern about refugees, they did not ratify the, uh, the OPCAT protocols. So they didn't do that, but they did. They have ratified the Convention Against Torture, but not the 
optional protocol that would give the panel, you know, these powers of uh, investigation and recommendation. So uh, it is a strange sort of state of affairs that it took the Dondale incident essentially to bring light to a situation that left refugees, as it were, to the side. And then it, uh, it's all about cash, is that right? That's the that's their excuse for not doing what they were supposed to yes. do. Yes, <laughs> of the human rights dimension than an issue of cash. It's uh, in a very crude state of affairs, but that's essentially what, what every government has said. Uh, the Victorian government has also made mention of the fact that, uh, uh, because they are one of the governments that has not actually put forth uh, a compliance legislation um, for OPCAT. Um, the Andrews government's yet to do that. Uh, in, other, in other governments, you know, they're sort of circulating in the wings, but not really been passed and so on. So, uh, the answer is yes, always the same thing. It's cash. Uh, there is a dispute. The Morrison government said that it was a state priority, which is an odd thing to say because the Commonwealth, of course, has primary funding requirements of that. So they shifted it off to the states. The states have shifted it back to the Commonwealth. And so we have a situation, a standoff, essentially, that uh, as yet under the Albanese government has yet to be resolved. So we'll have to see what happens there. Is there any shame or... Anything like that being expressed by these governments? Sadly, um, from the context of, of officials, not very much. Um, I, they certainly um, has been, of course, outraged by uh, numerous uh, representatives of the human rights community, you know, uh, umbrella organisations, uh, the Australian Lawyers for Human Rights and a range of other bodies, uh, Human Rights Watch, for example, they've certainly expressed deep concern about this. And the Human Rights Commission has also expressed concern and, and, and quite frankly, puzzlement about the way that this whole thing has been treated. But at the official level, it's quite striking that there has not been that sort of outrage and, and concern as they should be on all levels, at all levels of government. There seems to be this kind of insistence, well, okay, we, we've been caught napping here, but we, we are still going to, as has been said by the Commonwealth government, we're still going to call out other governments in other countries about their human rights abuses, this doesn't make our situation more parlous, and I find it very strange. How widely in the international community is this decision by the, the group to suspend the inquiry? What does it mean for Australia's sort of place in the UN if they've, they've suspended the, the inquiry into the, because they can't get what they want? Yet again, um, Australia has found one thing in terms of observing human rights instruments. So when it comes to its voice on international panels and when it comes to the, uh, the mantra about, for example, what happens when, uh, you know, in terms of Chinese authorities' treatment of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang province, this doesn't look very good. The fact is that if Australia can't sort out its own problems uh, at, at all levels of government, then you know, we have a very strange situation when human rights abuses are called out in other countries. And this is, of course, dynamite in any propaganda sense to critics of Australia's stance. You know, they can simply throw it back at uh, the critics here about uh, other instances and say, well, let's, let's be quite frank. You know, the, uh, the, this primarily important UN body has suspended, you know, seemed to have something to hide. And that's not a very good look for Australia. Well, as you say, it's suspended. What needs to happen for it to recommence? 
Well, there have been a few moves uh, of, that are promising. The Queensland government, for example, has said that they will update, they will rush through legislation. How fast that will be is very unclear, but they will rush through legislation correcting the notification requirements for uh, subcommittee members to visit uh, the um, inpatient units. So the health department will have new conditions that do permit the committee to visit so they don't have to give advance written notice and so on. So that's something that's being done. Palaszczuk government has promised that. We still don't know with New South Wales. It's, uh, um, Parite is uh, very stubborn. Um, Premier per- Parite there seems to be rather stubborn on the issue. Uh, but it seems that uh, what has met Mark Dreyfus, the Commonwealth Attorney General, suggests that there will be some moves made to address this problem. What happens from here on in, we'll have to see. But uh, it's by no means over with the panel's you know, attempts. Um, expect the panel probably to visit at some stage later. But with New South Wales being recalcitrant here, it could be a problem. Final comments? Well, I just in line with what we've seen yet again, we have this uh, problem where uh, human rights becomes so heavily instrumentalized. It's not seen in terms of the context of the dignity of human beings, but it is seen as a very commodified thing. You know, in this particular case, it's funding, and that's a, a terrible excuse to uh, justify a state of affairs as we have. And then, and then, of course, this puts Australia, as I said before, in a very bad light when it comes to criticising other states and have their own human rights problems. Good, thanks so much. No problems, John. Thanks a lot. You take care. Have a good day. And Benoit Campmark lectures at RMIT University and is also a contributor to Pearls and Irritations. There are now 189 people on hunger strike. 62 have sewn their lips together, including two women and five children. For Woomera, this isn't an unusual day. We have an old saying in Persia that says, there is no darker colour than black. So we were in the camp, we have two options. Either deporting us to back to persecution, to prison, to death, or die in the camp. But I think you guys give us a third option, which is another try. They bent like half-cooked spaghetti. We didn't expect it to happen like that, to the soundtrack of Amelie, a popular French movie at the time, blowing across the desert from dusty speakers. The fence began to fall, under the weight of people wanting justice, under the weight of people that had had enough. Join us for Woomera Stories on Monday, November 21st and November 28th at 6pm on 3CR. Already they've set up camp only 200 metres from the Woomera Detention Centre's main gate. The Ethiopian Civil War and its Manufactured Humanitarian Crisis. That's the title of a paper published in Pearls and Irritations by retired Anglican Bishop of Goulburn and Canberra, George Browning. I asked George first to explain that title, Ethiopia's Civil War and its Manufactured Humanitarian Crisis. Uh, thanks, Jan. Well, it's because almost all humanitarian crises are man-made. I mean, sometimes 
things are outside one's control and the floods are outside Australians' control at the moment, but the terrible starvation and malnutrition that's occurring and dislocation in, in uh, East Africa is man-made. It's uh, manufactured through uh, uh, jealousy, desire for power, uh, conflict, etc. And it's just tragic that we human beings behave in such a manner. Same in, in Ukraine, too. But when you look at Africa and look at the colonial past, how much mm. of that do you see in the conflicts, even in 2022? Well, uh, of course, um, the influence or the repercussions of colonisation do remain. They've, they've, they remain here in Australia with, uh, with our own Indigenous First Nations people and the pain that they still endure. So I had a taxi ride. I went to Melbourne for the, the Peace Prize and the taxi driver in Melbourne was a um, Somali, a person who took me to the airport and I asked him about Somalia and all the rest of it and he said, well, of course, we are still a colonised people. What he meant by that is that much of the problems they face uh, result from, from European colonisation. It, it is true. Are you familiar with the area? Have you worked there at all? Well, I've, I've visited Valerie on, on three or four occasions, so I'm, I'm in that sense, I've not I've not lived there permanently, no, but I've I've visited Valerie on several occasions. And where is that? She lives in the Afar region, which um, is the poor, really the poorest region in in Af in in Ethiopia. Um, poor because it's is a it's very very hot, stony and desert-like much of it, and uh, the people are nomadic. They travel depending on where the rains fallen and um, pick up their Jaboiters and um, put, put them on the back of a camel and go on to the next place. But they're very resilient and um, they're dignified and beautiful people. Um, and from the point of view of human ancestry, um, as much as we can tell, we human beings largely come from that area of Africa hundreds of thousands of years ago. Mm. The borders of Ethiopia, it's a constructed colonial border. Well, it is, yes. Um, the, the colonizers of Ethiopia were the Italians, so the Italian empire was not particularly large. Um, but, yes, they came under uh, Italian rule, and um, which came to the end of the, end of, end of the Second World War, really. But um, since then, Ethiopia has had a very difficult time. There were autocratic tyrannical leaders, there was a communist party called the Dirge, and there was so much hope with the, the new prime minister in 2018, particularly when he won the Nobel Peace Prize for his peace covenant with um, Eritrea, which <clears throat> was carved out of Ethiopia some years before. But um, yes, e Ethiopia is essentially a group of tribal areas. Uh, the Oromo, are, I think, are the largest. Ismara are, are large. Um, the Tigrayan area is actually, relatively speaking, quite small, but its influence, as I said in my article, grew out of the fact that their military, the TPLF, was successful in um, defeating the Dirge. And since that time, they have uh, uh, exercised considerable national power. When the current prime minister came to power, uh, that evaporated and they... <coughs> Dislike that, they wished to have more power, and then the conflict uh, began in um, 2020. I know Ethiopia is a landlocked country, 
is it yeah. a rich is it a rich resource country? Well, it could and should be. It actually could be um, a food bowl for much of uh, much of uh, not just for itself, but for for neighbouring countries. It's Addis um, <clears throat> Ababa is quite um, climate is actually um, not overly hot, and uh, it's it's high up and. Uh, and the ground is quite fertile, but because there's been so much conflict over so many years, the agricultural capacity of the country hasn't been developed the way that it could. But uh, the, the reason why the Afar region where Valerie is and uh, is so important is because the um, the route to the Red Sea, from which most e- most Ethiopian trade and goods come, goes through the Afar. So who controls the Afar? The people who control the Afar control really the, the trade route for Ethiopia. And are coffee beans still a major exporter? Yes, it is an export. I don't, so it's, don't know that it's, it's such a major export. There are so many other countries in the world now that uh, produce coffee, um, but it is one of its exports. A lot of a lot of Ethiopia, as in most countries in Africa, there are um, international interests that develop things. So, for example, in the Afar region, there is a capacity to develop um, energy from uh, hydro, energy from water, and but unfortunately, that is exported out of the country rather than used by the local people. Same with the salt mine. Uh, my brother-in-law Ishmael was in jail for quite some time, I think it was last year, it might have been the year before, because he stood up against the proposition that um, people could come into the Afar region, pillage the area minerally, and but not provide any royalty or benefit to the people who live there. We know that the United States is involved with many countries in Africa, and I imagine China as well. Is that the case, is that the case with Ethiopia? Yeah. Jan, I'm not, I'm not really sure about that. Um, uh, it, it doesn't have as big an interest in Ethiopia as it does in some other places, particularly, of course, in closer to, to home in, in Latin America and so on. It has huge interest, and in, and in South America it does. Not so much in Africa, although there, there have been so many European interests, as you know, in North Africa. France has told, like Liberia has a lot of interest there in Algeria. Uh, we, I shouldn't say we, the British have interests still in Kenya and Uganda and uh, to a lesser degree in, in Rwanda, etc. But I, I understand the most stable country in South Africa these days is Kenya, and Kenya takes quite a, a large role in uh, peacekeeping in other countries. There has been a, a broken peace between the fighting groups in Ethiopia. Yes, that that was actually signed in Pretoria in South Africa, but um, the Kenyans have have played a large part, and yesterday the news indicated that um, agreement has been signed as to how aid is to now enter Tigray, because so many people are starving in Tigray and and aid is urgently required. (coughs) And um, I suspect that Kenyan peacekeeping troops will probably be deployed, I suspect, in, as part of the way in which aid can be safely distributed in the area. There's been no news at all as how that's to be done and in the FR. The, as I said in my article, the FR 
were quite kind of incidental. They had an incidental involvement in the war because they were neither on one side nor the other, but the two uh, parties in conflict met, as it were, in the FR region. So they, and it's been one of the darkest days for my sister Valerie because so much of our own work was destroyed. So many of her medical centres and schools and areas were just just destroyed, were looted, um, and um, and it made she was so emotionally quite distraught because so many women were raped and children were taken away. Young children who were probably hardly ten years old were taken away as soldiers, etc. So it's been a very very difficult time. The armour of these groups. Who arms them? Yeah, who arms them? Yes, that's a, that's a very good question. I'm, I, I don't know the answer to that, Jan. I'm, I'm sorry. But um, you, you're raising a, a question which is one of the great moral, moral questions of our time is that um, so many countries and Western countries make a mozza out of war. Um, uh, unfortunately, the ongoing war in Yemen... Uh, m- much of the armaments for there has come from from Britain and from um, from the US. I, I think also some some Australian armaments have been used in those wars. It, it is re- really quite disgraceful. The arm the uh, the armament industry is one of the biggest. It is shameful how uh, some countries benefit from the the suffering and uh, violence of other people. Our television and print is full every day of the war in Europe, the preparations, mm. we believe, for war with China. Yet, in the biggest continent on Earth, I'd imagine that many people you met in the street could not tell you where Ethiopia was. We'd ignore Africa. No, no, I don't suppose they could. And, and that's one of, one of the sad things which... Others have commented on, but I will comment in, in, on in my blog, that um, it's estimated that between 300,000 and 600,000 people have died in the conflict in Ethiopia in the last two years, which is considerably more than are dying in, um, in the Ukrainian war, as bad as that is. And in addition to that, um, the, the humanitarian suffering, the starvation, the, um, the malnutrition, etc., has made it almost certainly the worst conflict of our time. But, but yet, as you say, hardly any Australians would even know that it, it was happening. Does this mean that the, the appeal for funds is going to be difficult to come to fruition? Yes. Our, our own modest distribution of funds through the Barbara May Foundation has helped Valerie a little bit. But um, she, she has just returned from Germany and Denmark and the, there is considerable help from some European countries and also from the Scandinavian countries in recent times. In a way, understandably, Australia has withdrawn aid in large measure from Africa and concentrated more on the Pacific. And that's understandable, but it is sad. And uh, as I've intimated in my article, we don't really have the right to complain about people's travel as migrants to Australia, uh, as refugees to Australia, if we're not prepared to make it possible for people to stay where they are. You can't have it both ways. You can't, you know, just um, describe 
um, refugees as troublemakers or, or whatever, have terrorists or whatever, as we have in Australia, and not on, and at the same time not assist them or viable place at home. I, I, I was going on to say, COP, the conference in Egypt is. And the reality is that we in Australia are creating per head of population as much pain as anybody in the world to those who live in marginal in marginal situations. And in Ethiopia, the um, the rainfall is far less um, secure than it used to be. And um, while we in Australia are suffering from climate change, we have the funds to mitigate, mitigate against the disasters <clears throat> and uh, to help people when there are floods, droughts, etc., and bushfires. In Africa, that isn't the case. People suffer alone. And so a huge moral obligation to others are paying the price of our profligacy, really. Can I move on to Palestine tomorrow, the 15th of November? is Palestine National Day. How will you be celebrating? Well, I, I've just come back from speaking in Sydney and I, at, a, at an inaugural dinner for uh, Palestinian Christians. Um, now there are far more Palestinian Christians in the diaspora. Has it been easier for Palestinian Christians to migrate than it has been for Palestinian Muslims to migrate? And uh, next week I'm back in the parliament, um, although I'm no longer the president, I'm the patron, I'm, I'm back in the parliament lobbying on behalf of the Palestinian community. So um, in a way, I don't need a Palestinian day to be working on their, on their case. I'm doing that almost every day as it is. But um, I, I'm filled a little bit with both hope and trepidation at the moment because the latest... Um, Israeli election, as I suspect your listeners know, has returned the most right-wing government that Israel has ever known, and that's saying something. And and they and in the government there will be a party called the uh, Zionist religion, the religious Zionist party, which is clearly a racist party. The, the statements from its leadership indicate that they they wish uh, to do everything they possibly can to remove Palestinians from land which they wish to, over, to, to take and uh, is their aim to control the land from the river to the sea and um, their behaviour in doing so is, is unbelievably, unspeakably outrageous. What gives me hope is that it is so bad and so outrageous that I think it makes it far more difficult for politicians in Australia, Britain, France, Germany or the United States come to that to, to remain uncritical, and I think that there will be a growing sense of, of unease and disease with the new Israeli government, and we can see that already with um, Biden's government, the, the new government, and in Australia, uh, Penny Wong, in her statements, be removing herself from uh, the kind of position of the that our previous conservative un government uncritically uh, had in support of Israel. Well, finally, George, you've just stepped down from long-time presidency of APAN, that's Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network. What have those long years as a president meant for you? Uh, well, 
uh, as I said at the annual meeting, it was, it's been an enormous privilege and a joy to me to have been president. It's been a, a gift, really, over the years. Well, why did I do it? Well, because deep down within my Christian faith, I, one of the things I believe is that when you, uh, when you break bread with people, you're actually bound to them. And for, since the ni- 1970s, really, I, I have felt, because I taught Palestinian students when I was a theological lecturer, I felt bound to the Palestinian people. So in my retirement to, invest a significant amount of my time in this area has been has been a joy as i said in the report it's been sad for me in those nine years to see the situation in palestine deteriorate so much and uh, it the apartheid regime which israel has created is uh, stronger and deeper and more entrenched than ever and the suffering of the palestinian people is more grievous egregious than it's been but here in australia the profile that APAN has been able to um, build has given a much greater sense of uh, awareness amongst the Australian public and, and the, uh, also the, the leadership of Australia has given greater awareness of the plight of Palestinians and of the importance that if we claim to be a country that supports international law and um, wishes to, to deal with the abuse of human rights, then uh, we are bound as Australians to speak up for the Palestinians. And uh, I'm often accused by Zionists of being hypocritical, the Rohingya or people in Burma or wherever else in the world, East, East Timor, West Iran. And the, the reality is you can, only, you can only actually do one thing well, and I've chosen to do this to the best of my ability. But in addition to that, the reality is the situation in Israel was created by the West after the Second World War. Um, it was the United Nations, largely, that uh, decided to split Palestine into two lands and with the promise that 50% of it would be Palestinian and the other 50% would be for Israel. Uh, now, notionally, 22% is for Palestine, but of that 22%, so much has been eaten away by um, the illegal settlements and uh, the aggression that has been meted out towards Palestinians. Gaza is an open-air prison. So because that situation in large part has been created by the international community, the international community has an obligation to be part of the solution. So that's why I've been doing it for such a long time. Why have I pulled out? Well, a, because I'm 80, and I don't think persons should be running an organization like APAN at that age. Two, because I've been doing it for so long, and I think always there should be new blood. And three, I believe that the time has come for, for APAN to be presided over by a Palestinian, an Australian-Palestinian, and Nasser Mashni will do it brilliantly well. Thank you so much, George. You're very welcome, Jan. And I've been speaking with George Browning retired Anglican Bishop for Canberra and Goulburn, and for the last nine years, the President of APAN, Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, and he's handed the baton on to Nasha Mashni. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.